Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with Adam Gower. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alan. It's been a long time coming. So thanks so much for your patience. Yeah, multiple reschedules, but here we are. I'm glad we could do yes, it. So indeed. Adam and I have known each other for a long time, but I've been on his show. I'm a longtime fan of his newsletter, which we'll get into. But as a brief background, Adam is a seasoned real estate professional with over 30 years of finance and investment experience who today builds tailor-made crowdfunding platforms for real estate professionals who want to find more investors so they can raise more money. And he has taught over 4,000 individuals how to build wealth, preserve capital, earn passive income from investing in real estate. He is the foremost expert of real estate crowdfunding, has published multiple books, which I have read, and they're all terrific. So Adam, I'm glad we could finally do this. Let's get definitional here. So we're going to be throwing around a lot of terms. Could you maybe help kind of give the scope of what in your world crowdfunding means? Yeah, it's a really good place to start. And I'm just tapping out notes, by the way. So if you hear my keyboard tapping, it's not because I'm texting or emailing anyone. I just don't want to forget. Adam Adam has the most energy of anybody that I've talked to maybe. So he's always moving at a million miles an hour, but it's good. I'm a caffeine caffeine achiever, Brian. We're going to get some good information out of it, so. Uh, all right, so I'll tell you what. So to start with, the, the, I, the term crowdfunding can be a bit misleading. So let's talk about the technic, what it means technically, but also how it's understood or what it's understood to mean. So technically, what crowdfunding is, it actually comes out of the JOBS Act of 2012. And the JOBS Act had several 
sections in it. And one of them was called, one of the regulations that emerged in the Jobs Act was Regulation CF for crowdfunding. But it's an extremely tiny corner of capital formation for real estate. I mean, it's, uh, they, to, to do a Reg CF offering, you have to go through a funding portal. It's monitored and managed and overseen by the SEC and by FINRA. It's really complicated. But that is technically what crowdfunding is, Reg CF. Very few people use it right, for real estate. It's usually used for, you know, like go, go fund me and get donation stuff and little startups, et cetera. Then there was another part of the Jobs Act that was called Regulation A+, Regulation A+, Light Regulation CF, Regulation Crowdfunding, also allowed for non-accredited investors, right? So that's kind of a big distinction. They were both, both allowed for non-accredited investors at scale with restrictions. So Reg A+, had a lot of disclosures and, you know, it's like a mini IPO, so it's a much bigger deal. But... The core of what happened with the Jobs Act of 2012 was the enablement or the was the reversal, I should say, of the prohibition against general solicitation. So general solicitation means that small businesses, actually, technically small businesses, can now advertise to sell shares in their company. That's really all that meant. Now you can advertise. You put up a website, you could go on social media, you could say, invest with me. Well, prior to the Jobs Act, that was prohibited actually by the Securities Act of 1933. So the word and the idea of crowdfunding or the word crowdfunding kind of became loosely associated with syndicating a real estate deal online, raising money for real estate syndications online. But it is slightly misleading because it isn't technically crowdfunding. So, but you can think of it in when you'd speak to me and I talk about crowdfunding, I still you do use the term to mean synonymously or synonymous with online syndication. You can syndicate a real estate deal online. I use the term crowdfunding, even though technically it's not exactly the right word for it. Yeah, it's very complicated. I, I think of it with my former lawyer hat on as, to your point, general solicitation to the public is illegal, except for a series of exceptions that have been carved out by the SEC and FINRA and other regulatory bodies, which essentially follow the lines of what maybe many folks would know as a broker-dealer or other kind of exemptions that operate under this regulatory scheme. But I think most people would think of, in the real estate space, as Crowd Street, Realty Mogul, some of these shops that have kind of spun up. And mm -hmm. could you give people a sense of like what that marketplace and activity looks like and what we're talking about here in terms of how far that's come since sure. what the Jobs Act you said was enacted when? 2012. So okay. it was a bipartisan act. 10 years ago? Congress. Okay. Yeah, just a little over 10 years. Yeah. But the laws were not actually promulgated for another year or two. So it's really still a you know nascent industry. Okay, so you ask scale and also uh, so what happens. So let me uh, so the story of crowdfunding again, just using this term loosely, right? Online syndication, general solicitation, which is now legal online, 
something you can advertise and you can put your deals up on social media, you can ask people to invest, you weren't allowed to do that. So what that did basically was it created an intersection between two industries when general solicitation was permitted by the Jobs Act. And those two industries are commercial real estate, essentially finance, capital formation, right? Raising money for real estate, private equity real estate deals, and the world of digital marketing. And if you think of a Venn diagram, right? Two circles, that intersection there between these two industries, digital marketing, commercial real estate, finance, that intersection is a new industry. This is a new industry of what I call real estate crowdfunding. So when that happened, the first movers, pretty much the first movers to say, oh gosh, look, now suddenly there's this, this new regulatory environment that allows us to market deals online. The first movers were those companies, essentially that formed marketplaces. So let's say, to give you an example of what that means, pretty much everybody knows what the MLS is, the multiple listing service. I think it's national, right? Every, every, everywhere in the country, if you want to sell a house, you want to buy, your, buy a home or you want to sell your home, you would go to the MLS or you'd hire a broker that would list it on the MLS. So when you list on the MLS, you are listing an entire house. And for commercial real estate, it's Loop, you've got LoopNet, you've got CoStar. They are marketplaces. So you go to these marketplaces and you look and you decide whether, you're not want, whether or not you want to buy a specific property, the whole property, right? I want to buy that building. I want to sell this building. And then you find an individual or a company that will buy the entire thing from you. But they are marketplaces. When you go there, you can see hundreds, if not thousands of opportunities to buy buildings. So what the crowdfunding what emerged immediately out of the Jobs Act were marketplaces that are very similar in the way that they work. But instead of selling or listing entire buildings, they list instead the opportunity to invest a small amount in a much larger building, right? Something that you couldn't otherwise afford to buy on your own, you now have the opportunity to invest in. So you can go to CrowdStreet, the, the ones that the early movers, there was actually one called Realty Shares that failed, but they failed for all kinds of non-real estate related reasons. And we can get into that if you want, if you want to, but it's, it's definitely in the weeds. But the ones that started, that are still around, who have grown dramatically, CrowdStreet, Realty Mogul, Real Crowd. And then you have a bunch of others that do a single family flipper debt and you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So what they did was they set up marketplaces. So they, you can go to these websites and you can see you know, a smorgasbord of investment opportunities where you can invest a small amount in an individual deal. So that was one type of company that never existed before that emerged out of the job set. The second thing that happened was that individual sponsors like Excelsior and others also started to use to, to realize, hey, look, we can we can market our own deals online, our own investment opportunities online. And so people can come to your platform and they can take or to your website. They can say, oh, I'm interested in investing there. But typically those individual sponsors are just soliciting for their deals that you don't you're not going to see a marketplace you're not going to see dozens of different sponsors 
different opportunities. You're just going to see one or two or however many that particular sponsor has. So those were the two big shifts that emerged out of the uh, of the job sites was the marketplaces and then individual sponsors giving you the opportunity to invest directly with them. So I am curious to get into some of the, you've been in this space and deep in the space more than anyone, I think, that I know of. That's one to come out and talk to me at least. What have been the through lines for the ones that have done really well? And then there have been some blowups in the space. You know, some of these crowdfunding sites have, have had some serious issues and challenges. Are the consistent themes across the ones that have not been successful? That's interesting. Okay, so the only one that I can think of that's not been successful is uh, Realty Shares. By the way, you did ask me about scale. We track SEC filings, so Securities and Exchange Commission filings. Every single sponsor in the country has to not list, but they, uh, they have to file paperwork with the SEC. So we track that. It's really difficult to do, actually, because it's a cumbersome database. We scrape the SEC database and we analyze what's going on. And what I can tell you is that crowdfunding or online syndication, and again, just to be technical, that's Regulation D506C offerings. That's where you can use general solicitation. Has grown from zero to probably over 35% of the entire industry. In other words, it's become a dominant force of finance. From nothing, now it's prevalent, right? So scale-wise, it's been, been a revolutionary change in the industry. So the one big failure, actually, in the marketplaces was a platform called Realty Shares. It was actually founded by Navathwal. And it wasn't really a failure, actually. It was actually enormously successful. It was actually one of the most successful platforms. The problem with Realty Shares was the way that they were financed. So they set up like CrowdStreet. They were one of the earliest, actually. In fact, I think they were founded even before CrowdStreet, who are now the, what do you call it, the 1,000-pound gorilla, 500-pound, whatever the size the gorilla is. They're the big gorillas, CrowdStreet. But Realty Shares were even earlier than CrowdStreet. And they started to build up. They were very successful. They were financing investments. They were very successful in finding investors. They were successful in finding sponsors. They were successful in building their platform. They were very effective, but they were venture capital backed. And the problem with VC capital, particularly in their case, and it's not true for every VC backed company in the industry, but for realty shares, the problem was that there's backers. And I think I want to say they raised 80 million or so. I mean, it was just huge numbers. The problem was that venture capitalists like to see an exit. They want to see some way that they can exit their investment, that they can sell for some huge multiple of their investment. And the challenge with realty shares was that their financial model didn't allow for a massive exit. Right. So the, the venture capitalists that backed them basically said, even though the business is growing and it's growing well, we don't see a way of 100xing our investment anytime soon. So we're not willing to put more money into building this business. And so they switched off the pipeline of, of venture capital. And that really just caused realty shares to have to shut down. They had to shut down. They built a huge team of people. 
They had, you know, highly paid uh, employees. They had underwriting departments. I mean, they were huge. Right? I mean, they really got to be quite big. So their capital was pulled out from underneath them. They had to shut down. But they were actually acquired by another company, the Remnants, actually. They, I was actually called in to help a little bit at that time. And they were acquired by another company that's gone, a private company that has gone on to do their own capital I'd go on to do their own capital raising. But so that's really the distinction that realty shares had when they failed. It wasn't because of the real estate or the thesis. It was because of the, the demands that their capital was were placing on them. So these other bigger sites that you mentioned that people are more mm-hmm. familiar with, do they have different capital structures? Are they not venture backed? So, yeah. So I think that they may have some capital. They may have raised some capital. CrowdStreet certainly have started raising institutional capital, so like significant amounts of, of capital. But they, they're not faced apparently with the same restrictions that realty shares were. They have, again, I'm not privy to what their bottom lines, they're all privately held. So how much money they make, I don't know. But presumably because they continue to raise capital also from venture capitalists and from investors for their own platform, Presumably, they do have a, an economic model that feeds that ultimately. And they look, the scale that they get to like CrowdStreet, I don't know, they may well go public. I mean, chances are they will. Rich Uncles, for example, they changed their name to Modiv. They were also an early adopter. This was Ray Werther, who was the chairman of CBRE and Harold Hofer. They set up Rich Uncles. The name was changed to Modiv, M-O-D-I-V, and they did do a public offering. So that's how they were able to, you know, bring capital, return to their investors, the capital that they had invested in the platform. So you referenced just how much the space has grown and obviously sponsors like myself and these marketplaces and other groups being able to access new pools of capital in an efficient manner is groundbreaking and a game changer. Right. (laughs) There has been a diminution in the accredited investor requirements recently. Do you feel as if from a regulatory, just high-level perspective, do you think the trend line is for more and more people to get access to these type of offerings and investments, generally speaking? Uh, what diminution are you talking about? I'm, I'm so, not... yeah, so... Um, a broadening for sure, but... A... Yeah, so they, they said that if you were a CPA or a CFA okay. or a JD, right. that you didn't have to meet some of the other requirements to be accredited, yeah. for instance. Yeah, but okay. There's so a sense I, that that I, might I, also be expanded, yeah. So I think of this more of as a, as a kind of broadening of the standard. So the standard for being an accredited investor was, the standard was defined in 1982, actually, is when I first came to America. It's a very long time ago. You know, when you think about it, this was when inflation was... In the twenties, interest rates. You could when you. I I remember putting money on deposit at the bank and getting twelve percent interest. Crying out loud, mortgage rates were in the high teens, and it was a different era. But the standard was defined in nineteen eighty two, I think it was, or nineteen eighty, and that's two hundred thousand of income for the last two years, and a reasonable chance of earning the same this year, or a million dollars of net worth. And in those days, you could include your primary residence. Now you cannot. But basically, it stayed the same for 40 years. So in 1980, when it was first, the standard was first defined, I don't know, there were a few hundred thousand accredited investors. Now, 
the standard hasn't changed for the most part. There are 11, 12 million accredited investors in the United States. The broadening, but now here's the issue though, that basically these were financial criteria that defined, essentially they were a proxy for understanding complicated concepts, right? Because you've got money, you should be okay. The idea was the, the you, you know, you must have the intellect or the knowledge or the experience, the training to understand what you're getting into. That was kind of one basis for the standard. The second was you can afford the loss. <laughs> Basically, if you've got all this money, you can hire professionals who can advise you and you can afford, you know, any kind of loss. That was the idea. So the broadening to CFAs or to financial people with, you know, what, what are they called? Licenses, you know, broker dealer licenses and the like, really just says, you know what, you don't have to have the money as long as you're educated. And these, if you have these qualifications, then we'll consider you as accredited as well. So that's a long way of kind of contextualizing my answer. My answer to your question, which was, is this going to continue to get broader? Yeah, I'm sure it will, but not so much necessarily for the definition of an accredited investor and more just for the visibility of sponsors like yourself becoming increasingly visible online, right? You're on social media, you've got a podcast, your website's doing well, the SEO is kicking in, people are discovering you. And so more and more accredited investors are discovering the opportunity that they've never had before to invest in private equity real estate. And that we know is growing. I know it's growing. The marketplaces are growing. I know it's growing because we get more and more people, sponsors coming through the door. We're building more and more platforms for them. It's still blue ocean, basically, for sponsors. And for investors, the opportunities are getting more commonplace. You can find them more easily. But also, I would say the hazards also, frankly. I mean, if you want to get into that discussion, Brian, you know, you've got to know, you do have to know what you're doing. It's easy to be seduced by some of the marketing that's out there into believing that there is limited risk, where in fact, real estate investment, as you well know, is high risk, essentially. I mean, high risk, high return. I mean, it can be mitigated, right? But the risk can be mitigated, but you got to know who you're dealing with when you make an investment. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download. So when you say things like the marketing is getting very sophisticated, large pools of capital, high risk, high reward, it seems like a perfect product for Wall Street. So why, why haven't we seen more large institutions? I mean, we're starting to see like Jamestown and some other groups come into the space, but there really hasn't been a huge push by some of the brand name, brand name Wall Street groups to come in. Do you think that's inevitable? Is it happening and we're just not noticing it? What's the state of play there? Yeah, so I actually think some there are large institutions. I mean, if you have deep enough pockets, you can you can invest in 
you know, some of the, the huge funds, you know, BlackRock and Colony used to be able to invest in. But uh, and they go through different channels, right? They'll use uh, broker-dealer channels. It's a very different kind of economics that they're using. And they're also raising hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, it's kind of a different world. What we do see, and when crowdfunding first started, again, online syndication being synonymous with the concept of crowdfunding, when the industry emerged originally, and I was talking to all the founders of the platforms and other early adopters, we all wondered how big can this industry get? What's going to happen? And early on, we imagined that or predicted that there would be a ceiling. And that that ceiling would be when sponsors are raising more than, and I forget the exact numbers, Brian, but when sponsors are raising more than 10 or 20 million of equity for an individual deal, that's going to be the ceiling because at that level, private equity funds who draw their capital from institutional investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, et cetera, they will take over at that point, right? And crowdfunding won't get any bigger. But what we've discovered is that there appears to be no ceiling. So you have crowdfunding platforms like CrowdStreet, for example, who I think they just did their biggest raise, 60 million of equity for one deal. Our clients have raised, I think the biggest single raise was on a single deal, 22 million, uh, which is not an insignificant raise. Our clients also, some of them raise funds that we have one that started the year last year with 75 million to raise in a fund that actually ended up raising 130. So that's number one. We're seeing that there is no, seems to be no ceiling. And as online syndication, crowdfunding does get bigger and bigger, it is drawing the attention of institutions. So a lot of the sponsors that come to us are their history is entirely institutional capital. That's all they've ever raised before. And they're intrigued by the idea of raising capital from individuals instead of from institutions. And we also were approached you know, frequently by institutions as well who have started to think of crowdfunding as something more than a curiosity and something that is intriguing to them. And actually, think about it this way. What is institutional capital? Well, if you think about it, pension funds, right? So a pension fund is you paying into a pension, right? You, you're a worker, right? You got a career and a job, and you're paying into a pension or an endowment. Somebody, they only have billions of dollars because individuals are contributing. Insurance companies, right? You're paying insurance. Every, every, we all pay insurance for something, your car or for, you know, your home or whatever. And those have to, those insurance companies and those institutions all have to invest it somewhere. So ultimately, the money is all coming from the same people. It's just channeling a different way into these opportunities. And that's why what we're seeing here at Gower Crowd is increasing interest from institutions who are intrigued because it's the same people they're getting their money from who are investing a different way in the same deals and they want to know more about it. So what do you think the biggest misconception is for those groups when they come into this space? What's the largest misunderstanding they have? So the bigger shops when they come in, the first thing is they're concerned that their institutional partners will take umbrance, right? 
wait a minute, what are all these, you know, hundreds of investors doing? They're going to cloudy cloud the waters. That's number one. But in fact, what we've found is that, in, and you probably have the same experience, individuals are generally, once they have confidence in what you're doing and they write a check, they generally go fairly quiet. I mean, we find that sponsors, it's a beautiful thing for an investor, crying out loud. It used to be that you would have to get to know a sponsor, which meant, heaven forbid, you'd have to meet them, right? You'd have to go and have lunch. And then you'd have to sit down and listen to them for an hour while they pitched you. And then you'd have to follow up. And it was this like this whole dog and pony show you'd have to go through that and you're being pitched all the time. It was like going to, you know, buy, excuse me, going to buy a car. You don't want to sit on a lot. You want to be able to figure it out online in your own time, get comfortable and make a decision and then maybe contact the sponsor. So it simplified it from investor perspective. So one of the big misconceptions is that it's going to be overwhelmingly difficult to deal with hundreds of investors instead of one big investor, whereas in fact, it just doesn't work that way. It's not, it's not what's transpired. Now it's actually easier to deal with individuals because you don't have, it's a different kind of relationship that you have with them. So that would probably the biggest misconception is the challenge of dealing with individual investors is not as difficult as, not remotely close to as difficult as most sponsors think. And then again, on the sponsor side, these groups that have historically worked with institutional limited partners, Mm. what's the most work that you have to do with them on the marketing side to get them to understand that crowdfunding is a different audience, it's a different business model? Mm. What's the heaviest lift for you there? Yeah, is so their concern is, so what drives... The model, I mean, what drives everything is content. And when I say content, what I mean is essentially the digitization of your entire story and putting it up online. So an investor doesn't have to sit with you and ask you, Brian, what do you do? Tell me about your background. What kind of real estate do you like? You know, why do you like it? Where do you like it? What's the IRR? Right? They don't have to ask you any of that because what you do to be effective is you put all of that up online so your investors can research you and understand your investment thesis and your value proposition independently of actually having to talk to you. So the biggest concern that sponsors have when they come to us, sponsors who have institutional partners or only institutional partners historically, is they are concerned that the information or the the messaging that they create for individual investors will be too 101, too basic for institutional investors and institutional investors, they think will be put off. So what I tell them is think of it this way. Don't talk down to anybody. By the way, accredited investors, something like 95% and more have either certainly have a degree, an advanced degree or a professional qualification. In other words, highly educated. They might not know real estate, but they are highly educated. So the first thing I say is don't talk down to anybody. You don't need to imagine that you're talking to a kid, right? When you're trying to raise from an individual, these are highly educated, number one. And number two, speak to your ideal investor. If you want to speak to in all your, the way you present yourself, If you want to attract accredited investors, the best thing you can do is to speak to your institutional partners. 
write your content, create your videos, and explain these concepts, your value proposition, your investment thesis, as though you were talking to an institutional investor, as though you were in a boardroom with, you know, half a dozen pension fund managers. How would you communicate with them? That's how you should communicate. Because what you will do if you do it that way is you will be speaking to a sophisticated, knowledgeable audience, and that will attract other sophisticated, knowledgeable people. And that will attract accredited investors. So you will attract and nurture both audiences at the same time by targeting the one that you, that you want to target and by speaking to that, their language, or speaking their language, I should say. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of your work, the changing landscape of digital media, obviously social media, video content, there's a lot happening within the marketing space right now. How are you advising groups when they're thinking about speaking to their ideal customer profile or their avatar, but obviously you want to keep getting younger and broader with your network and audience? What's best practices there? Well, best practices certainly are to create as much content as you can. It's really the bottom line. And what that means is the way that we do it is we create video. So we interview all of our sponsors, right? So I actually ask them, teach, look, I've been in the business a long time, but I don't know what each individual sponsor's unique value proposition is. And the thing with commercial real estate, Brian, as you well know, is there's, you don't need a qualification, right? You know, there's no school that says, you, okay, you're now qualified to be a real estate sponsor or developer. No, the way you do it is, like me, you, I'm pulling wires for an electrician and eventually doing you know, raising money and building buildings and from experience. So everybody's perspective is unique to them and to their own point of view. Nobody is the same. You could ask, if you were to ask every single one of your your guests over the next, however, 10 episodes, what is the IRR? They would all give you a different perspective based on their experience of how that's been used in their career, Right. They see the world through the lens of their experience, and that is unique to them. So what I advise, what we do with our clients, is we advise them, please, I always ask, teach me your view, for example, of the IRR. What's your view? What is it good? Is it, is it fungible? Is it, does it have its flaws? How do you use it? How do you not use it? Right? Why do you like it? Why do you not like it? Everybody has a different perspective. And that is what your investors want to know. They want to know what your perspective is. They want to learn from you. You can run a search on Google and get a million hits for just about any search term for real estate. But your investors want to learn, or as an investor, you want to know what your sponsor's perspective is. And so we always advise, please, whatever it is, there's no right or wrong answer. What's your point of view? That's the point of view that you want to be talking about. That's what we need to create content about or around. And if somebody listening wants to get into this space, they've been a sponsor, but they haven't really explored crowdfunding or really broad syndication, what's the first step? Like, What's the big piece of advice that you give people who want to get into this business? When you say into, you mean from an investor perspective? From a GP sponsor perspective. From a sponsor perspective. So I think the biggest, if they've never been in the space, I think the biggest hurdle that most people have is realizing that they're going to go from being essentially invisible online 
to being quasi-famous. That's the big difference. You're suddenly going to go from nobody knows who you are to being seen everywhere by everyone all the time. Get used to it. That's the, really the big shift. You know, we have some clients who don't like that. They, and so we, you know, they have some of their team members. <laughs> I will be the face of the company. But that's really the biggest, the biggest hurdle is realizing that people are investing in you, the jockey. So you need to be out there and you need to be seen to be out there. And, and then eventually, you know, one of my clients, they're an industrial shop out of Chicago. I, I asked him actually for a testimonial. I don't want to get into that. But he said, you gave me permission to do it. That was the term he used. I was afraid of going out there and, and being seen and being visible. You know, we'd always done it at the country club and close friends and family. And that's the only way we did it. You gave me permission to be visible. He said, now I love it. I'm just, he loves it. He loves every minute of it. He loves being visible. He loves being people coming to him he'd never met before who know all about him. That's what blows him away. People come through the door and say, yeah, yeah, I know all about you. Just tell me about the deal you've got. I'm intrigued in the next deal. Yeah, that's the biggest shift. Yeah, individuals and families invest with individuals and families, right? That's the biggest change. I think you nailed it in terms of, You've got to put yourself out there. Kind of like what we went live on before we did this. You talked about a post that I put up five weeks ago. Right. I assumed you had seen it, but I don't know. But like you have people come up to you and you talk about these things and it, it can be uncomfortable at first, but you've got to just get yourself there. And it's not as scary as people think. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, Adam, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh. It's been really fun. If you could give a call out to the website newsletter and what other social media handles and channels that you typically focus on? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I think really the best bet, if I may, is just suggest if you do want to learn more, just go to gowercrowd.com, G-O-W-E-R, crowd, gowercrowd.com, and sign up for our newsletter. It goes out every Wednesday. There's no charge for it or anything. And we cover as best as we can. We try and list all the deals and all the news and marketplace updates and whatever's going on in the industry we push that out with easy to follow links uh so it's a kind of smorgasbord of the latest news in the industry that's the best way to to get in touch yeah i highly recommend the newsletter i've been on the distro list for a number of years now and there's a lot going on in the space and it's always a really good summation to give you some highlights of what's happening so you can track it all well adam i look forward to staying in touch through the newsletter and others and thank you again for joining us my pleasure thank you for having me brian Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.